0: Rare diseases are not that rare. Like there is between eight and ten thousand rare diseases right now.
1: Welcome to Wiser Conversations podcast. I'm Dina Ladd, the executive director for the Missouri Cures Education Foundation. For the past 10 years, I've been focused on protecting and promoting medical research in the state of Missouri. And during this time, I've met amazing researchers and scientists and entrepreneurs. Seven years ago, I started the Women in Science, Entrepreneurship and Research events. The purpose of these events is to connect women all around the state to each other to share their stories, their challenges and opportunities. So I hope you enjoy the Wiser Conversations podcast, which really highlights the work of women in science, entrepreneurship, and research.
2: Today joining me is Dionne Stalling. She is the founder and executive director
0: of Frayer in Black. Welcome, Dionne. Thank you for having me, Dana. It's wonderful to be here.
2: So in 2014, you were diagnosed with common variable immune deficiency. Tell us about your journey and the challenges of discovering that you had a rare disease.
0: I have been sick most of my life with some form of infection um, that wouldn't go away. Uh, Some of them were small things like I always had strep throat or I always had upper respiratory infections, bronchitis, things like that. Um, But in 2008... I had a hysterectomy and that hysterectomy, um, I hemorrhaged. And um, that hemorrhage resulted in another surgery and that wound never healed. Um, and it still has not healed, and here we are in 2021. Um and the long story short was that wound got infected. Um and the doctor that I was seeing would not open me back up. I was not out of the house, but I probably think about, I, I've lost count. I used to know exactly, but I, around about between 30 and 40 times between January of 2009 to June of 2009. And basically was told, after I told a fantastic lie or uh, that my friend told me to tell him he referred me to an oncological gynecologist that was like, I don't know why he sent you to me. I don't treat women like this. Um, and he said, but you need to get this taken care of. You have a blocked bile duct. And if you don't get take this taken care of, you're gonna, you know, it's possibly that you're gonna die. So I went home. Um, I lived less than five minutes from a hospital But that hospital has a notorious um, reputation of not being the most, the best hospital for care. And I went home and I looked online and I found a physician that was probably 25 miles from my home. And I called the office and from there, that point, I got an appointment with this um, surgical uh, team. And from there, I started seeing those doctors. And uh, long story short, they um, c- couldn't figure out why this wound wouldn't heal. And after several surgeries and years and years and years later, um, I got an infectious disease doctor that kind of reminds you of how, and he's very inquisitive. And after years of seeing him, he was like, you know, I can't figure out what's wrong with you after we figured that I didn't have AIDS. His last resort was, let's see if you have AIDS. And I did not have AIDS. And so he referred me to an immunologist. I spent seven minutes in a examination room with an immunologist. And she said, I think I know what's wrong with you and I'm gonna draw some blood and then we're going to send this off to a lab in California and I'll call you with the results next week. I got a diagnosis and I cried like, boo-hoo cried for probably 30 minutes because I was a 45 year old woman, had been through every specialist, every hospital in St. Louis and in the Washington DC area at the time had been told that I need to see a psychiatrist, um, that I hadn't been taking my medicine properly, that I was overweight um, when I really wasn't overweight um, and everything and I got a diagnosis then.
2: Well, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. I think it will help others um, to not give up and to continue you know, seeing specialists until they get an answer of uh, what's going on with, you know, with their body. So did you feel as an adult and a person of color that it was even more of a challenge to be diagnosed?
0: It's funny that I have a hat that says rare. I bought it years ago. I used to always say, and my mom, all of my friends would say, leave it to you to have something. If there was something different that could go on with the sickness, it would be me. Like I got bit by a spider one time and my leg got infected or this would happen and I would get an infection. The adult thing wasn't the thing. I believe the person of color um, is a huge thing. There are, um, of course, um, now with things coming to light uh, about the plight of black people, Henrietta Lack's story and the Tuskegee experiment, um, books called like Killing the Black Body or Medical Apartheid. There are problems within the medical community that cause medical students to go through the medical um, educational system not knowing how to properly diagnose and empathize with people of color for the most part. I did not fit the traditional um, and 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 being black is not monolithical. We are we run the gamut, you know. We have rich black people, middle class black people, and poor people, but there are more people that are underinsured and not in a position to be able to be properly diagnosed. There are roughly 42 million black people in this country, and um I have volunteered with the Immune Deficiency Foundation for years um, because when I got diagnosed, I didn't know what to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, the internet, which is something that I never do. I'm not one of those people that get on WebMD and say, oh, my God, let me see what this is. I don't do that. Sometimes but I a bad thing. <laughs> It is. And I, I have... If I did that, I would be crazy because there's always something wrong with me. Um, But what I found is through my advocacy, I'm usually the only person of color in the room. And even when I get invited to places or events, I'm the only person of color in the room, which is not a bad thing. And I I will always be able to be a voice um, for whomever because we need to have a seat at the table. Um, but what I'm most passionate about is with research and trials to make sure that Black people and people of color um, are, are there, you know, because genetically, we are different. Um, environmentally, we're different. and it's also important to me. It's very imperative that, um, you know, I, 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 this parallels, you know, how you, you were in school and somebody would always come and they would have a speaker and you would be like, oh my God, she's so boring. Why do we have to listen to this? Well, I feel like in medical school, if I could go and speak to, because I do that sometimes, I'll go to a medical uh, school class, and I'll talk to some medical students, and I feel like if they could see a person early in their medical career, and if they remember me when they go out into their, even if they remember in residency or once they start their own practices or if they're in the emergency room and they come in, maybe they'll remember, oh, that lady came in and she said this, they'll remember and that will affect the person that they see before them. Because I met an emergency room doctor in Chicago. He could not understand. He was like, I don't understand why black people, um, and this may sound racist. I was like, what is it? Um, I try to get the most of my patients are black people and I give them medicine and they come back in two or three weeks and I just don't understand it, I said it's not that they don't take the medicine. You're telling them what do they tell you when you leave the ER take this medicine and follow up with your PCP. So people are using the emergency room as PCP offices, because they don't have insurance, you can't get turned away at the emergency room, they triage you and they let, you know, they get you a diagnosis and they give you a prescription. And then what do you do? You take the medicine you that they give you. If it's something still wrong, you get be- better and then you get worse and then they have to come back. So that's important.
2: Well, I love, and you've you've touched on it here. So once you were diagnosed, I mean, you've put so much energy into being an advocate. A rare disease advocate, I and mean, you've been on Capitol Hill. You really got involved with medical organizations, like you were saying. You talked at uh, the medical school. You you got to know, really understood, like the prescription that they gave you. I know you were involved with the pharmaceutical company that creates the medicine for you. You've talked at different conferences. I, I mean, wow! That that is moving forward, I think really the research for, um, uh, rare diseases. And you're also setting an example for other rare disease advocates. And so, so when did you decide, okay, I'm going to start rare and black.
0: When I was talking to a young lady that was talking to me about her daughter, um, she kept saying her daughter has ear infections all the time, and in the black community, I we we hear that a lot. Like if you know people, they'll always say like, "Oh, she has an ear infection." Like it's normal, right? Certain things seem to be normal. Well, it's not normal for kids to have ear infections all the time. It's just something that we've become a used to, right? Chronic infections are part of primary immune deficiency. That's one of the things that they look for. If you have chronic infections that you're not responding to oral medications, that's a thing. And so I was telling her to talk to her daughter's doctor about it. Right. And she said, well, you know, she goes to the clinic and she doesn't see the same doctor every time she goes. And I said, well, asked them to test her for this, you know, tell them to look for this. And, and she said, well, they said they don't know what that is. Not they, they wouldn't do it. But why? I was like, there's a need. There's a need for outreach. There is a need for, um, education. There's a need for advocacy. There is, there's a, just a need. There's a need for us to be able to get kids, um, for Black children to be part of the RUSP list. We, you know, we've talked about that. Um, Our parents to be taught about baby's first tests. There's so much education that we lack as a community that I don't see.
2: Well, and as you know, um, we had our rare disease symposium and thank you. You were a speaker at that symposium last year. And so was Dr. Sesh Cole who is on the Undiagnosed Disease Network for the NIH. And so they're, tr- they're making an effort. And I think rare diseases are coming more to the forefront. And that's one reason we did the symposium. And, um, and what I loved is um, some a- advocates along with yourself started talking about a resource council to establish in St. Louis. And so why is this so important and necessary?
0: I believe it's necessary because I was floored when that's how I found you. Mm -hmm. I could not believe because I Googled rare disease, St. Louis, that's what I Googled and Missouri cures came up. When you walk into BJC up and on the second floor, there's a resource office right there of studies you can go there and be part of the studies. Well, I was thinking there's a resource office somewhere for rare diseases, right? Because rare diseases are not that rare. Like there is between eight and 10,000 rare diseases right now.
2: Well, I do think, and I know this came out of the symposium and you talked about it and others, that it's really a three-legged stool with rare diseases. You know, you have the researchers You have the patients who have to be involved in the clinical trials, and then you have the biotech company that hopefully, you know, from the research and trials, they can create therapies and so forth. But you know, back to the resource council. uh, I mean, parents who have kids who are diagnosed with rare diseases, adults diagnosed. There, there needs to be some type of resource center for them. And so, hopefully, as you know, we're all kind of talking together, working on that. And um, there's Rare KC over in Kansas City that's done a great job. And hopefully we can replicate that here in St. Louis. But uh, so uh, finally, I want to ask you about you're a writer, you're a master storyteller. So how do you use those talents to help others tell their stories?
0: Well, um, Mm -hmm. I believe that everybody has a story. What my dream would be Um, for Rare and Black to be able to submit some type of documentary, to talk about various rare diseases, to be able to talk from the standpoint of the patient, the care and the caretaker, because caretakers are uh, heroes too. But everyone has a story. I just think that some people feel like they're burdens when they're not, Um, and being chronically ill, has its own um nuance that a lot of people don't realize that their story is important too. Well
2: Dion, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today and thank you so much for being an advocate for rare diseases. Thank you for joining us for Wiser
1: Conversations. This program is presented by Missouri Cures. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Missouri Cures. Dan English is the producer of Wiser Conversations. Please like and rate our podcast. Until next time, stay well.